Well, in 2005, Kristen and I had been married for five years. We were pregnant with our second child, and I realized something. I don't really know how to be a godly dad. I don't know how to be a good dad. I definitely don't know how to be a good husband either. My dad had left my mom. My family had kind of grown up in the Christian South. My mom became a believer. My dad wasn't. And we just kind of were able to play the game. I've said before that, you know, something would be brought up about God, and it was usually from my mom, and the rest of us in the house is my brother, and me and my dad would be kind of like, <laughs> like nervous laugh, until like the kind of God talk moved into sports or some other thing, and we would just kind of like drift away from anything about the Lord. We knew how to, how to do academics well, we knew how to do sports well, but anything spiritual was, was not in our house very much. I needed to learn biblical teaching, and I needed to learn biblical observation, watching godly husbands and fathers. Friends, today we're doing an overview and kind of history of marriage, not a verse-by-verse teaching like we usually do, uh, but more of a primer that's going to lead toward our marriage workshop that's coming up this weekend. This is kind of session one, uh, and we wanted to do it on a Sunday morning because it's not just husbands and wives who need a robust biblical understanding of marriage. All of us do. This is for older kids and teenagers and singles and widows and widowers and husbands and wives. This is an understanding, the biblical understanding of marriage that our society is sprinting away from. But we don't just need biblical knowledge. We want biblical knowledge that leads toward a biblical observation, observing couples who functionally walk this out. So we hope this begins some of that today, this ignites some of that today, this continues those who are already walking it out, and that the workshop this coming weekend, Friday and Saturday, helps all the more. We're going to have lots of sessions and panels and questions and answers. We're bringing in Mickey and Jane Conley. Uh, Many of you know Mickey as he's preached here many times before. Mickey will often say that they've uh, they've been happily married for like 35 years. The problem is they've been married for 50. So there's 15 years there of not so happily married. So they can speak into this about what it means to transition from a struggling marriage to a godly marriage. Friends, there's a lot at stake if we don't understand marriage biblically. We will be off in the way we define marriage, the way we define romance, the way we even think about relationships. And our friends Tim and Kathy Keller give us a warning today. There are going to be several quotes today, and this is a warning to us as we think about marriage overall. They say this, unless you're able to look at marriage through the lens of Scripture instead of through your own fears or romanticism, through your particular experience or through your culture's narrow perspectives, you won't be able to make an intelligent make intelligent decisions about your own marital future. And it's not just for the marital future. If we don't have the Bible as the center, if we don't have this as the defining point of our marriage, we're going to have a different foundation. Fears or romanticism or the cultural whims or our personal experience 
Friends, we need to understand this. If we don't understand this, this will greatly affect your home, obviously. This will greatly affect your church. The stakes are high, and Scripture is our guide. Point number one is this. The goal of marriage is God's glory. The goal of marriage is God's glory. I love this quote by Christopher Ashe because it just gets right at the, the point. He says, the key to a good marriage is not to pursue a good marriage. The key to a good marriage is not to pursue a good marriage, but to pursue the honor of God. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Friends, Jesus was a single guy. The Apostle Paul was a single guy. And they speak a lot about marriage. Some of the verses we're going to look at today are by single guys talking about marriage. And they know the key to marriage is a life lived for the glory of God. If your sole passion is to glorify God with your life, that will greatly impact your marriage. Tim and Kathy Keller again say this, until God has the proper place in my life, I will always be complaining that my spouse is not loving me well enough, not respecting me enough, not supporting me enough. Friends, if God's not being glorified in our marriage, we're going to look for someone else to to make us have a happy marriage. And we're probably going to be pointing at the other person. Friends, before we consider marriage as a whole, we must have a biblical understanding that all of life is for the glory of God. So we have to ask ourselves some hard questions like this. Do I seek to love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength? Do I... Seek to love God with everything in me. Do I, like the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3, count everything as a loss, including my marriage, compared to the surpassing worth of Jesus Christ? Do I press on toward Christ, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead? Friends, we're talking about marriage today. But the way to crush your marriage is by focusing primarily on your marriage and making it an idol. We see this all the time in our culture, and it crushes husbands, it crushes wives, it crushes families. The way to have a good marriage is by having a right relationship with our Creator. And as a husband and a wife draw closer to the Creator, they draw closer to one another. So please open up to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, for you guys who are uh, musical fans, we start at the very beginning, a very good place to start. Don't sing the rest of the song. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Genesis 1, 26. Then God said, let us, this is Trinitarian language, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over everything all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female, he created them. 
And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Friends, God creates two distinct but equally valuable genders in His image. Gender is not a social construct. Gender is a God construct, a creator construct. And we see that what is good and true and beautiful in the act of God creating is that these two are in the image of God. Being image bearers is so significant to understanding who we are, why we're here. Image bearers have three interrelated capacities that this passage shows. First, they relate to God. They relate to God. They're they're relational beings. We'll flesh that out more in a little bit, but they relate to God and relate to one another. Second, they represent God. They serve Him and they have dominion, a, a ruling over creation. And third, they reflect God. They reflect God's glory in the world. Back in ancient times, people would try to figure out, okay, what kingdom is this? They didn't have signs and billboards and, and uh, you know, social media outbursts anywhere. They had little images everywhere all over the kingdom, and those images showed who was king of that territory, who was king of that land. Well, who is king of this earth? There's images all over this earth saying whose kingdom this is. This is God's, and we are image bearers. We are like the moon reflecting the light of the sun. We reflect God's light into this world. And notice the relationship between man and God. There's a blessing, verse 28. God blessed them. Joshua was referring to this a little while ago, this being fruitful and multiplying This addition and then multiplication of image bears that are a gift, as Josh quoted Psalm 127, calling kids, children, a blessing and reward from the Lord. So there's this blessing in the relationship, but there's also a mandate. Let them have dominion. Men and women are to have a ruling, managing, stewarding over creation as vice regents, as a kingdom of priests who represent God in the world. And when thinking about men and women and the marriage relationship in Genesis, we've got to think about kind of two different orientations. There's this inward orientation of the husband and wife, and there's an outward orientation of the husband and wife. There's an inward oneness, a fruitfulness, an intimacy between husband and wife, and there's this outward expression and dominion and taking kingdom ground of the husband and wife. We can't just focus on one or the other. Both of those go hand in hand. Now, Genesis 2 zooms in on what Genesis 1 has already explained. Genesis 2 slows down and speaks of God's interaction with man. Man is in the garden. He's working it. Work comes before sin ever comes in the world. That's helpful for us to know. He keeps it. And Genesis 2.18 says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And so then Adam has this parade of, of creatures come before him, and he sees the male and the female, the male and the female, the male and the female, and he doesn't have a suitable help. And then Genesis 2, 23, 
After God brings Eve to him, the man said, This at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now for the original reader, there's a cadence that you find in Genesis 1 and 2 that everything's good. The first day, it's good. Second day, good. You get all the way to day six, and it's very good. But then there's this not good first time in the Bible. You, you have this cadence of good, then a not good. It is not good for man to be alone. You see, God created mankind to be relational, relational with God and relational with one another. I don't really have to explain this a lot coming out of COVID when it's like, do I want to get sick or do I want to be with people? Like, and we're, like, society was, like, trying to figure this out of, like, the importance of relationship, and is it more important this or more important that, and there's debates that rage even to this day, but that we are relational beings is significant. We image God. And friends, when Genesis 2.18 speaks of this not good, Christopher Ash says this, it is not good, not because Adam is lonely but quite simply because the job is too big for him to do on his own. This is why he is given a helper rather than a companion. When God says, I will make a helper, he isn't talking about someone just to have babies, but a full partner in fulfilling the mandate for dominion and reflecting his glory. Tim and Kathy Keller say this, to help someone then is to make up what is lacking in him with your strength. So ladies, the biblical teaching does not diminish the woman, but puts a man and a woman beside each other as image bearers of God, equal in dignity and value and in personhood. So you see, the, the point is that it took two genders working in conjunction to rightly serve God's purpose of representing and reflecting God in this world. Now those Genders have roles. Husband leads, loves, serves. Wife helps is a counterpart, a companion, and a complement. No sense of inferiority or servitude are implied by the, by the wife's role. The fact that God created a helper implies, man, you need help and support. So to be married and not to be functioning in a oneness is incomplete. The other night I was watching game six of the uh, NBA finals, and we were, we were on vacation this past week. We were in, where were we? Garden City. And so we're at this rental house, and we're watching game six, and as game six is starting, we're excited to watch this. I'm a Steph Curry fan. I don't care about anybody else, just like him. And um, so wanted to watch this game with my nephew and some of my kids, and so we're getting ready to watch this game, and a storm comes in, and the, the home had the satellite. Um, and the satellite started going out. So we're trying to watch this game, and as tip-off starts, this storm comes in, and it's like grainy and messed up, and you see a ball over here and a foot over here, and it's just like messed up on the TV. There's, it's not a wholeness going on of what you're wanting to watch. That's what happens when marriage is messed up. It's, it's, it's like grainy. It's distorted. The picture that it's supposed to show is not coming through well. Husband and wife working well together biblically, a oneness. 
Once we're called into a marriage, there's a oneness. And if there's no oneness, that is great harm. A one marriage, a oneness relationship pulling against each other in opposite directions is only going to bring harm and strain and tension. Friends, marriage is not supposed to be that. There's to be a oneness in all areas. And it's not purely pragmatic. Like marriage, you're supposed to enjoy your marriage. Like that's part of it. Like you see in Song of Solomon that, that it says in Song of Solomon 5.16, this is my lover, this is my friend. Like you actually enjoy being around each other. If that's not happening in your marriage, there needs to be some, some intervention We're not just business partners, checking boxes, just living in the same household. No, there's to be a oneness and an intimacy. And this is not just the sexual relationship. This is the entire relationship, a oneness, a partnership, an affection in how you parent your kids and how you decide financial matters and how you make decisions about housing or vacations or time management or whatever it is. There's a oneness holistically. And that's why our culture's perversion of marriage and just laying it on the sexual relationship can never work. And it was never supposed to hold up a relationship. There's a oneness all the way around. It's a holistic oneness. Marriage is not just a human custom. It is God's created institution, God-designed, God-glorifying, covenant love. Only that can have a true oneness. But we all know things have gone horribly wrong. The divorce rates among Christians is similar to non-Christians. And we know the effects of struggle. Paul Tripp says this, Our marriages live in the middle of a world that does not function as God intended. Somehow, someway, your marriage is touched every day by the brokenness of our world. Point number three today is marriage defiled. In Genesis chapter three, Satan takes the guise of a serpent. He engages in conversation with Eve while Adam stands by idly. Major problem. Eve sins by questioning God's goodness. She wants to, what the scripture says, is be like God. The problem is they're already like God. They're in his image. So they eat the fruit The one no in a garden full of yeses, they go after the no. And Adam's right there. He's to lead and protect. And who is held responsible? Guys, this is important. Adam is. Romans 15, I mean, sorry, Romans 5, 12. Sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. But not only is human nature corrupted through sin, marriage itself is corrupted. We see the corruption as God speaks of sin's effects to Adam and Eve. In Genesis 3.16, it says the woman's desire will be for her husband, but the husband will rule over her. There's some, 
it's, it's questionable about all the interpretation of what that means, but what we see is there's some sort of tension going on. Some think that it's like the woman wants to usurp the man, and the man's going to like rule over her. That may be a translation for it. We see in the New Testament that there's some interaction of like the tension between the marriage. But another translation, or how you translate, could be that the woman's desire being for the husband is that she looks to him for fulfillment and fruitfulness in a similar way that the man looks to the ground for fulfillment and fruitfulness. So the man is tempted to look to work for wholeness instead of God. The woman's tempted to look to the husband and marriage for wholeness instead of God. Only God brings wholeness. Friends, don't we feel this brokenness in our marriage? We feel this pool when we're not doing well spiritually. Wives, where and when was the last time you tried to take the wheel of your marriage? Or feel that, that this, if, if my marriage were fixed, then that would bring fulfillment. Husbands, where are you tempted to be harsh in your leadership? Where are you tempted to abdicate leadership and just be passive? Friends, let's note that the temptations should not surprise us. But we must note that God comes to Adam and Eve in the midst of their sin, in the midst of their crumbling marriage, and God intervenes. In Genesis 3.15, God tells Adam and Eve that a serpent crusher is going to come from Eve's family line, and that would crush the serpent. God then does something that has never been done up to that point. He kills an animal to clothe the people. And so in the midst of a failed marriage, God comes toward the couple with hope and restoration. Both the serpent crusher and the animal dying and covering sinful people are foreshadows toward the Savior, Jesus Christ. So point four today is this, marriage redeemed. If you're discouraged about your marriage, we have hope. Your marriage is about more than your marriage. Ray Ortland says this, only the gospel of Jesus can free us from this endless power struggle and restore the romance, the beauty, the joy, the harmony God intended. Manly initiative, cherishing and defending the woman, womanly support, affirming and empowering the man. It is the gospel that renews a broken marriage. Friends, it is the gospel that molds a man to lay down his life for his wife, to consult with his wife, to care for his wife, to cherish his wife, to defend his wife. Friends, it is the gospel that molds a woman to respect her husband, to support her husband, to encourage her husband. And guys, let me just encourage you to both declare and demonstrate your love for your wife. That will be wind in her sails. Know your wife. Study your wife. You don't need to know how all women think. You don't need to know how women in general think about this or that. You need to know how your wife thinks, what she cares about, what she thinks. You need to study your wife. I'll share this more next week in our marriage uh, workshop, but I have a file called Kristen 101 to study my wife and to learn her. I would encourage you men, study your wife. Know her. I know that my wife would rather me do the dishes than bring home flowers all day long. If I'm like flowers and I'm sitting on the couch, 
She's like, whatever, I don't care about flowers. I need help. I've got all these kids, help me. <laughs> and ladies, let me encourage you to encourage your man. Tell him where you see God's grace in his life. That will be wind in his sails. When Kristen says, babe, I'm so thankful that I'm married to you and you're doing a good job, man, that just encourages me. Like, yes, somebody likes me. You know, it's like, you're like going after our wife. The gospel of Jesus lets us stop curving in on ourselves. Consider our spouse and show them love. See, it's amazing in the midst of Adam and Eve's sin, God goes toward them. He says, where are you? Not because God who created them is looking like, I wonder where they are. Are they behind that tree? He's not curious. He's helping them understand where they are. They need to know they're now separate. Friends, some of us in our marriage right now, God's saying, where are you? Like, wake up. Your marriage is not as strong as you think it is. And he's like, not because he's coming to drill you, but he's coming to restore you. He's coming to help you because that's what God wants to do. He is for you in your marriage. And he sends rescuers, and we see this foreshadowed throughout the Old Testament, this theme of rescue, rescue from slavery. The Passover lamb dies instead of the people dying, this substitutionary sacrifice, this provision of manna from heaven, this holy temple in the midst of his people, pointing, pointing, pointing to redemption. Then you see in the New Testament, Jesus, the Redeemer, crushes the head of Satan at the cross. Jesus, the Redeemer, isn't merely saving people for heaven. He's reversing the effects of the fall, and that includes the effects of the fall in your marriage. We saw in Ephesians a few weeks ago that because we are saved by Christ, we put off the old self and put on the new self created in the likeness or image of God in true righteousness and holiness. We are imitators of God. We walk out love. We are to walk as children of light. Christopher talked last week, we are filled with the Spirit. And what does that look like in the marital relationship? Paul continues that. We're going to spend more time in the text of Ephesians 5 next week looking at marriage. But here's what it means. Wives, Ephesians 5.22, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Verse 31, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. 
However, let each one of you love your wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now, like I said, we're going to spend lots of time in that text next week, but here's the thing I want you to catch for today. Paul's appeal is to Genesis 1 and 2. Paul's appeal about marriage is to the very beginning of marriage, and the mystery of marriage is represented in Christ and the church. The practical outworkings of marriage is shown in the relationship of Christ and his church. So husbands, live like Christ. That's what we're called to, lay down your life for your wife. That's how you become a good husband. Wives, live as the church is called to live in Christ. Marriage is a living picture to the world of Christ and the church. And, and marriage reflects God's purpose in creation, Genesis 1 and 2, and God's purpose in redemption, Ephesians 5. So friends, as you see godly husbands lay down their lives and serving wives lay, <laughs> love and, and respect their husbands, you get a picture of Christ in His church. You get a picture of a window of how God is working Marriage is to be a shout. This is an earthly picture of a heavenly reality. Friends, we love to pray, let your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. This is part of the answer to that prayer, that our marriage would be a picture of Christ in his church, a picture of earth as it is in heaven. I love this quote by Tim and Kathy Keller. It says, marriage was designed to be a reflection of the saving love of God for us in Jesus Christ. That is why the gospel helps us to understand marriage, and marriage helps us to understand the gospel. Think about that, friends. This is why the gospel helps us understand marriage and marriage helps us understand the gospel. So kids and teenagers, this is why you need this teaching also. Because you need to understand the gospel. You need to understand what it looks like for Christ to lay down his life for his bride. You get to see pictures of husbands and wives and how they interact together. And married friends, this just asks and begs to ask us questions. Does my marriage help people understand the gospel? Does the gospel inform my marriage so that others can have hope in the midst of struggle? Ephesians 5 speaks of this ideal of what God wants us to see with marriage. This is the goal. This is the trajectory. But let's be honest, it's not that easy. When Kristen and I were engaged, there was an older man who, who uh, Kristen worked for, and he pulled Kristen aside and just said, hey, I need to tell you something. Marriage takes a lot of work. And I remember us talking about that, and we're like, really? Like, we had no idea. We've now been married 21 years. It takes a lot of work. Kids, it takes a lot of work. Young marrieds, it takes work. When two sinners, as Dave Harvey says, when two sinners say, I do, Man, it takes work. Ann Voskamp says this, marriage isn't always about being happy. 
Marriage is about growing in the right direction. Friends, we don't live in the ideal most days. In Colossians, Paul speaking, and 1 Peter, Peter speaking, speak about pitfalls that remain in our marriage. So just to quickly summarize them, Colossians 3, 18 and 19 says that husbands should not be harsh with their bride. Why would Paul say that? Because husbands have a sinful temptation to be harsh with their bride. 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7 says that wives are to be respectful and pure in conduct, have a spirit that is gentle and quiet and not be fearful. Friends, why would Peter say that? Because there's a sinful temptation for the wife to be disrespectful, to not be gentle with her husband, and to live more out of fear than of faith. Peter goes on to say that the husband is to live in an understanding way and show honor to his wife. Friends, why does Peter say that? Ding, like this is not hard. Because husbands can just roll their eyes at their wife, not live in an understanding way. Husbands can manipulate and control and demean instead of showing honor. Here's the summary. Husbands can be harsh, lacking understanding, and be dishonoring. Wives can be disrespectful, contentious, and fearful. The Bible is extremely vivid and practical and makes eye contact with us and gets very real about our struggles and temptations. But friends, those temptations to sin does not make sin inevitable or excusable. Romans 5.20 says that where there's sin oh, that's a, that's a place for grace to abound. That's a place for God to pour out his grace on you. Friends, by God's grace, you can grow in your marriage. Chris and I have met with and counseled many a couple who's struggling in their marriage years ago who's now thriving in their marriage. You see a husband who starts owning this, owning the loving, servant-hearted leadership, and, and the wife owning the intelligent, gracious submission and respect, and all of a sudden, the oneness starts thriving. And friends, I don't just believe this superficially. I've seen God work in my own marriage. Remember, I started out this sermon saying that in 2005, I didn't know how to be a good husband. I didn't know how to be a good father. I needed help I needed godly counsel, godly books, godly examples. And those are things that God used to change us. I remember being at a Valentine's banquet at our church in Charlotte. Mickey, who's going to be here this weekend speaking, it was like a, I don't know, a 10-minute little mini talk. And God used that mini talk at this Valentine's banquet, which, by the way, Chris and I won the dance competition at that banquet. Just want to shout out that. And, uh, but God used a little mini sermon that, that Mickey did talking about having a merit system in our marriage. He said a merit system, and he's just kind of talking about how if, if you like win points and lose points according to like, you know, you did the dishes or you came home late or you came home early or you bought the right thing or whatever, whatever it is. And there's like this this checks and balances merit system, a works-based marriage, if that's in your marriage, there's no gospel. Because that's not grace. And I realize we don't have grace in our marriage. We have a merit system. Five years of a foundation that I helped build, and it was my fault. 
And I had to repent because our foundation was cracking. And I had to repent to Kristen and say, we've got to figure this out, how to build a new foundation on grace. We've got to learn how to be gracious with one another because we weren't. One of our mentoring couples, Gary and Betsy Ricucci, wrote a book that deeply encouraged us and has encouraged others. And before I give their quote that I'm going to give in a second, I just want to say they're one of those couples that's in their 70s, and they still got it. Like, they still have that spark. You see those, like, 70-year-olds that are on a date, and they're still, like, holding hands and giggling and stuff like that. And people think it's, like, their second or third or fourth marriage. It's like, no, they've been married for years. I still want that spark. I still want people to think that Kristen and I are on our honeymoon. Like, guys, do you guys, like, still, like, love each other? Yeah, we do. The fire's still burning. That's what Gary and Betsy are like. They're what I want to be when I grow up. In their book, Love That Last, they say this. This is so encouraging. He said, God, they say, God wouldn't have used the analogy of marriage of Christ in the church if it weren't possible. It's overwhelming to realize he, God, intends to cultivate the same abundant, unconditional love between husband and wife as he himself has for us. So friends, if you don't get anything out of this message, understand this. God is for you in your marriage for the married folks in here. God is for you. He intends to overwhelm you with his grace. He intends to overwhelm you as you take small steps of obedience, of repentance, of forgiveness, of restoration. Paul Tripp says this, God will give you everything you need to be what you're supposed to be and do what he has called you to do in your marriage. Friends, do you believe that? Friends, do you know why we're doing a marriage workshop this coming weekend. We took a church survey several months ago, talked about areas we need to grow as a church, areas we need to have like some teaching and understanding and greater depth. You know what the number one thing was? That wasn't just answered by married couples. Marriage. We need help in our marriage, elders. Please help us in our marriage. Friends, that's why we're doing this, because we need to grow in this. And friends, if that's you, if that's your person in your community group, if that's your neighbor, they're welcome to come as we talk through marriage. But let me give you some action items as we kind of think through takeaways of, of what to do with this Genesis 1 and 2 passage in this teaching today. First is this. If you are married, let me encourage you to sign up for the marriage workshop. You have just been through session one. Congratulations. We'll have a session on Friday night followed by a panel discussion, two sessions Saturday morning with panel discussions. We have child care available. You can sign up on Realm. Second, prepare your heart. Husbands, let me encourage you. This is a place that you can take leadership. Signing up, talking through this before Friday night, maybe having a date night or discussion at some point this week about, hey, where are we right now as we're going into thinking about this? How is our communication? Where, where, what's going on right now in our marriage? And if you are an older child or teenager or single or widow or widower, friends, you have a part to play in this. Let me ask you to pray for the marriages of this church. 
You need godly couples in this church because as they grow, it helps us grow. As the tide goes up, all of us go up or go down together. Marriage is not just about marriage. Marriage is about God's glory. Godly marriages are a picture for you, single person, a picture for you to understand Christ and His love for you. We're going to end with this quote, Gary and Betsy again. Marriage is not an end in itself. Marriage is to fulfill God's purpose in building His church, preparing the next generation, and testifying to the world of the peace and order of His kingdom. Friends, marriage is here in the inward, but it's also got that outward component. Let's end by praying together.